welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. We have with us again uh, for a second time joining on the podcast, Kevin Dye, and uh, he's a proven security professional and semi-recently retired from the U.S. Secret Service. He was a supervisor over there and has over 35 years of executive protection and supervisory protective operations experience, including the U.S. presidential protection detail and protecting visiting heads of states and major presidential candidates. Now, about five years ago, he made a transition from the Secret Service and now is a senior manager of executive protection with Procter Gamble, where he's been for about half a decade. And uh, he has a long history of law enforcement and protective security. Um, and even if you dig way back into his uh, his uh, professional work, uh, he started out in the U.S. military. So, Kevin, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast again today. Uh, we're going to do something a little different today and do a little bit more of a get to know Kevin and uh, a journey through your protective and law enforcement experience all the way to the private sector. So welcome. Yeah, good deal. Awesome. Well, let's start at the uh, the beginning of your journey. Uh, like a lot of people in the protective security space and a lot of the guests that have been on our podcast, you started in the U.S. military in the Air Force. So let's let's start out there. What led you down the road of service to begin in the military? Uh, well, I grew up in a uh, farming community in Ohio. And for those of you that are not indoctrinated in Ohio, uh, there's really not a lot here <laughs> except for three cities and a lot of farmland. And um, I, you know, there really wasn't much for me here. I, my parents weren't very uh, wealthy and we had a big family. And I kind of had to make some tough decisions on what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, where I grew up anyway, if you don't go to college, you go in the military. Uh, that's pretty much what you do where I'm from. And that's what I did. I, uh, uh, all my friends uh, wanted to be Navy SEALs and, you know, do all that stuff. And uh, me and my friend uh, uh, had decided that we were going to make that transition. and we got pretty intoxicated one day, went down to the recruiting office. And if anybody ever tells you that recruiters don't hire drunk people, that's, that's totally fabricated. <laughs> um, Navy office was closed on the day that I went down uh, and they were out to lunch. I don't know if that's apropos for the Navy, but um, uh, we were in, in one of those like quad offices where uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, you know, yep. and uh, the Army office was there the marines and the army guys were salivating because my buddy that was with me is a very large man well you're not exactly a short stature guy yourself so well most of my friends are really i'm probably the smallest of all my friends uh it's a, That's again, saying it's a, something it, it's yep. a farming community so everybody's kind of large i don't know maybe it's i don't know what it is but um but anyway the air force office was open and there was a very attractive young woman there and uh i you know, I looked in there and I was like, we need to go into that office and talk to that person. <laughs> so, uh, but my friend, uh, who I joined with, uh, on the buddy plan, he really wanted to be a canine handler. Hmm. Um, I didn't have any propensity towards law enforcement. It wasn't really my choice. Um, and, 
but he really wanted to do that. So I joined with him uh, under that program with the intention of doing that. And I ended up in law enforcement. Yeah. You spent uh, about nine years, uh, almost a decade in uh, yeah in the Air Force. Um, what kept you hanging around that long? I loved it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It was a great, great place to be, great people. Um, but the problem with the Air Force is they they have a tendency to over-educate you while you're in. Mm. And uh, I, I ended up getting a master's degree uh, as an enlisted person. Wow. And uh, a couple different things happened that uh, kind of pushed me out. First of all, if you go in, everybody that's in the military, if you get past 10 years, that's pretty much the mark. You know, either you're going to stay in or you're going to get out. And uh, I was still in my 20s. Uh, nine years is a pretty big decision. And um, a couple things happened. Uh, first of all, 50th of Pearl Harbor happened in 1991. And uh, and then three years later, President Clinton came to uh, Hickam Air Force Base, where I, where I was assigned in Hawaii. Both times, uh, the Secret Service came. And my unit was law enforcement security. And I was detached to them as a uh, like a liaison person, basically like a fixer for the base. And on both occasions, I hit it off with the guys and girls and they were like, Hey, you really should consider joining the secret service. And, uh, after the second visit, I was pretty sold on it. Uh, the lifestyle was good. Paramilitary, uh, kind of environment. Uh, everybody there was super professional. Um, and it, it had a lot of draws for me and I'm not going to lie the you know, Quadrupling my pay was a big part of it too. Yep. Um, and uh, after the second visit, I pretty much set in stone that I was going to do it. And uh, so I made a plan, and uh, that plan always goes sideways because I didn't realize that it takes two years for your background check. Yep. So I separate. I se- <laughs> I separated and uh, went back home, and I had a no job, and that's not a good place to be in Ohio. Uh, my girlfriend who's now my wife at the time said, basically, you got to get a job, and now. And uh, so I, I went to the local uh, police department in my area, Hamilton, Ohio, applied and got accepted and surprisingly. And um, so I worked there for two years when I got hired there. I, I was very honest with them. I said, look, I, I've applied federally for two different agencies, uh, the FBI and the secret service. And, both of whom hired me, but the process takes two years. And they were like, you give us two years, it'll pay for your clothes that we're going to buy you and the equipment we're going to buy you. And that's a fair deal. That's awesome. I was going to ask, because uh, I'm sure the the hiring environment maybe was a little different in 94 than it is right now. And maybe not, but uh, I remember 90s, early 2000s uh, into probably, you know, when I was coming out of college, uh, it was tough to get a law enforcement job. And I think now everybody's hurting across the boards nationally that, you know, it may be a little bit easier to make it through those, those, uh, those front doors and into the Academy. Um, but what was it like for you in Hamilton? I know you, you, you made that little bit of a deal the two years, but, uh, were people knocking down the door at Hamilton or, or what was it like in that environment? Um, well, my, first of all, my, my wife made me get up out of bed to go take the test. I really want to do it (laughs) because I was like, I do not want to wear a gun again. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I was looking for other kind of opportunities and, um, I showed up, it was in a school tech cafeteria. There was 400 people in the cafeteria, uh, to take the test. And, uh, the city manager got up and said, um, this is one of two tests a day. 
there are 800 people applying for three positions. Uh, and in that room was quite a few uniformed officers taking the test. And I'm like, I, I'm getting up. I'm, I'm not going to stay here. I didn't, I didn't think I had a shot. And I was about to stand up and the city manager said, if anybody in here has been arrested for a felony, please stand up. And I couldn't stand up. <laughs> so I stay seated and then they started handing out the test. And I'm like, well, I'm here. I'll just take the test. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, I, I had a, the, the Air Force set me up for success. I, I, I've always been good at taking tests and um, I tested well, apparently, and got in. Awesome, man. One of just a few positions and uh, out of 800 plus candidates. I mean, I, I remember my hometown, it was always, you know, 300, 400 to one position. And even when I entered uh, law enforcement, it was one of those things where, hey, you're, you're lucky to be here, not the other way around. It was never, we're lucky to have you. You're lucky to be here and uh, you can go at any time. I hope it's like that in the future. I, you know, I hope it, I hope it roundhouse is back yeah. because I think you're going to get a lot better candidates. People are going to be bought in and serious people that want to be there are going to be there. Um, I don't want to see the the profession change to, uh, to kind of a guard service of sorts. Um, but, uh, but you, you do get to, uh, you know, the title of police officer in, in, in Hamilton, Ohio. And uh, the two years comes up and you're at a crossroads, I'm sure. Or maybe it didn't even take that long. But at, at some point, you're at a crossroads where do I stay here or do I continue on with this dream of being a, a Secret Service agent? I, I kind of uh, forgot about it, I'll be honest with you. Because being a police officer, your daily is adrenaline and go, go, go. And you love it. Yep. And uh, I, I, I kind of put it on. I mean, I, even though I was in the process, it was always kind of in the back burner. I didn't really think about it a lot. And then at about the two-year mark, I got a call first from the FBI, uh, who said basically, "Hey, we hired you." Uh, my lieutenant actually got the call and told me to come in on the road. And then he wants to know why the <laughs> FBI called me, uh, <laughs> which is a tough conversation. Oh man. Uh, yep. And then, uh, and then, so I, I, you know, I was trying to be nice. So I called the secret service and told them, Hey, I got hired by the FBI. Thanks for playing. Um, but uh, you know, I can't really pass up an opportunity like that. And the guy that I called who was doing my background, he said, look, don't sign anything. Don't say yes. Don't do anything. He said, you will absolutely hate the FBI. If you go there, um, we want you really badly, but the process is a little bit slower. So let me make some phone calls and I'll get back to you. Wow. I said, well, you know, make it, you know, please hurry because they want me to go to this training academy. So uh, he called me back the next day and he said, if you're, you know, willing to travel, if you're willing to start in Washington, D.C., uh, I can hire you right now. And I was like, OK, sold. I'll take it because I really did like the Secret Service the best. Um, but, you know, when you do a shotgun like that, you don't say no to a federal agency when they come knocking. So yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. I know a lot of people who have started with municipal law enforcement and made that transition. I know a lot who get to a point in their either career, they hit kind of that 10 year mark, which is similar to the military. And it's like, is it worth staying or going or, um, you know, is it, is it worth the pay cut? Um, and starting that trajectory over again. And, and everybody has their own, their own reasons for going or not going, but it sounded like the stars aligned for you and you, you ended up over where you originally wanted to be, which was that federal agency of the U.S. Secret Service. So what was that, again, transition from Ohio, you know, 
municipal law enforcement, which I'm sure daily duties are a little bit different than that of the Secret Service uh, in scope and mission. But uh, what was kind of day one like for you, if you can uh, reach back into that memory bank? Well, I actually started in Baltimore. And uh, thank God there's a lot of criminals in Baltimore. So um, I was assigned to a, a really good office and a really good squad. And uh, primarily you do, when you're a young agent, usually the first four to six years, you're doing uh, mostly law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement, uh, with a mix of security assignments you know, in, in between. Like you'll go post stand in Egypt or whatever, and you'll take a trip every now and then. Uh, but primarily you're doing, you're working cases, doing law enforcement, helping communities that, wherever you're assigned. Um, back then it, uh, there was a new program out for electronic crimes, uh, special agents. And, uh, I was in the first class for that. And I kind of got, uh, stuck in that little environment where you're doing, uh, forensics and electronic crimes and things like that. Uh, but it, it was an extra duty. So, um, in addition to everything else you did, you did that sort of interesting. So I was pretty busy. Um, and then uh, the, the Secret Service is very organized in their structure for the way your career goes. So you do four to six, then you go to a detail, then you, uh, you do five and a half or six, whatever. Um, and then you come off that. And by then, you've been on the job for about a little over 10 years. And then, then you, things kind of are different for everybody, like where you want to go, what you want to do. Um, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of choices, which is good. And, and the, the Secret Service is structured like the military. Um, you move about every, you know, five to six years, mm-hmm. roughly. Uh, the military is a little more than that. Um, and it's, it's a military environment where uh, the structure is very similar. Um, so it, for me, it was an easy fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's regimented. It's, uh, it's I'm not going to lie, it's very hard on your family. Uh, and the job is difficult sometimes, but, um, it, 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 for me, it was a good fit. Yeah. You know, and, and I've heard, uh, you know, working alongside in, in occasional cases with some of these guys and, and certainly the, uh, the perception of secret service agent is sometimes different from the reality. You know, I, I have yet to run into somebody, um, who has been difficult to work with, with, uh, their local partners. And, uh, and maybe that's just where I work as a local partner, but, uh, um, I think it's, it's interesting because we have such a perception, even in the law enforcement community, um, kind of what you guys do and maybe what you don't do. And, and there's an allure and, and maybe, um, an obscurity. And, uh, I still think to this day, not a lot of people know that you guys handle cases and do more than just the protection work for the president and other heads of states. So, um, you said you got kind of in on this kind of uh, electronic crimes, and I'm sure at the time it was a kind of the, that new kind of thing to do. Um, but what was your perception of it when you when you spent some time in and around that space? You know, it was again the Secret Service is a protection agency, so um, everything, and I mean everything, even your law enforcement cases, um, you know that protection is number one on the job. So everything is a second thing to you, uh, working around the protection aspect of the job. So electronic crimes, it was so new that people, people really didn't know if it was going to stick, if it wasn't going to stick, uh, if we were going to have to fight with the FBI or some other agency, which we still are, I think on that stuff. Um, 
but the way it is designed in the Secret Service, they have it set up with agents are investigators, and they should be the ones. To, we can train anybody to do anything in the Secret Service. That's the bottom line. So electronic crimes is something that we can teach you as long as you're willing to learn. And so they picked some very bright people to be in that program. And today it's developed into probably the, I mean, I'm a little biased, but I think it's probably the best program in America for electronic crimes. They're exceptional. Now there's three really, or two other really good agencies. Uh, DHS has a great group of people. The FBI cart teams are wonderful. Um, and those folks are, are super squared away. And we all kind of work together for the benefit of the United States. Uh, but Within the Secret Service, it's developed. I saw it over my career. It developed into something that is just really amazing, and it's in parts of it actually fall into the protection realm now. So, you know, we're we're doing network security for facilities, buildings, structures. Uh, you know, making sure that the power does not. You know, there's no way you're going to turn something off during our event. Um, things like that. You know, it's fascinating, and uh, you know, just looking, you've had a. 22 and some odd month career with the Secret Service. And uh, interestingly enough, you started before, you know, Y2K and you exited around, you know, 2019, um, almost 2020. And, uh, you know, a lot happened with technology, a lot happened with the world feeling smaller um, in that space from mid 90s to, you know, about 2020. Um, you worked amongst all that time. And so from when you started to when you ended, what do you think or what do you feel like are some of the bigger changes that you kind of saw progress um, during your time? Are you talking about in the world or in the agency? In in the agency, kind of reflective with the world. 9-11 um, happened, and that really changed uh, the agency, I think, a lot. Um, I was working that day. Uh, it was a very bad day for the agency. Uh, for the world, for that matter. Um, and uh, it also changed the culture. Um, the Secret Service used to be, I mean, when I first started, it was very happy-go-lucky, work hard, play hard kind of environment. Um, and, and there was reward for working hard, uh, obviously. Um, but over time, and especially after 9-11, uh, the focus on what the agency did became more and more and more and more transparent through media uh, um, and, and through their interactions with whatever it is they were doing around the world. Uh, so they were under the spotlight a lot and um, everybody's awareness on security is raised. Uh, and again, we have an ongoing war. So security is a taught issue. Things, e even in the EP realm, uh, that things changed uh, during that period. So, um, it's, it's still a very professional organization. I, I can't say enough about the men and women that are there. Um, very proud to have come from that. Um, but the best thing about the Secret Service is it never stays the same. Even though there's a strong, long tradition in the agency for history and, and doing what's right and the core values of the Secret Service, it always evolves to what it needs to be, uh, which is something that is amazing. You know, that is incredible. And uh, to that, um, you know, I've, I've had the luxury of seeing, you know, the protection detail in action. And I've, you know, had different uh, experiences, great experiences with, you know, case carrying uh, Secret Service agents. Um, but watching that protection detail 
um, do its thing uh, is is absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, first of all, the teamwork that's involved? The Secret Service is incredible when it comes to teamwork in a protection environment. And uh, they also have the luxury of probably having one of the largest teams on the block whenever they're somewhere. Um, but there's something to say about that. And, uh, you know, talk a little bit about that experience in, in the team environment and what that's like at the ground level. Well, again, the development of agents in the Secret Service is something that's very important to management. Um, each person, there's only 3,000, roughly 3,000 agents in the whole world. Um, so each individual agent is viewed as an asset. Uh, their training, their development uh, is, a, is a very important part of everything that the Secret Service does. And so when I was in and, and continuing through when I left, the emphasis on training is unbelievable. Uh, even when you're on the detail, the fourth week of every month is training. Uh, you're, you're training uh, for a full week with your team. Wow. Uh, and you're, you know, you're getting bombed, you're getting shot at, you're getting squibbed, you're getting whatever. Uh, and you're, you're, you know, doing motorcades and stuff's blowing up. It, it's, it's impressive, uh, how much the agency puts into the training environment and you're constantly doing that. Uh, so when something happens, nothing really surprises people in, in the secret service because they've seen it in some type of training scenario or uh, they, they, they've been practicing it for, you know, 15 years or something. So um, that's why nobody, you don't ever see anybody get upset or flustered or, you know, it, to them, it's just a, the agency puts so much emphasis on being prepared and being ready for that, that you really are when it does happen. You know, having stepped through the lens and we'll talk a little bit more about your, uh, your transition to the private sector. But looking back, is there anything that stands out in your time with the Secret Service that uh, uh, is particularly memorable or something you're particularly proud of? Well, you know, everybody, everybody was on the presence detail loves that period of time. It's it's quite literally magical because even though it sucks, I'm not going to lie, it's hard. Uh, that once you finish it, you look back with a lot of honor and pride. And, uh, but I will always say that uh, when people ask me now, what do I miss about the agency? A hundred percent of the time, I am always going to say the people, some of the greatest people I've ever met in the world. They could easily be presidents of any place in the world, uh, or in the secret service. And, you know, that's why we have an organization for that, you know, after for post-retirement and we're very close. Everybody still communicates with you, even in the EP world. Uh, the guys that I know that have left and transitioned into this, are some of the greatest people I know. And they call me about stuff and I'll, I, I will take time out of my day forever to help them. Um, but the people in the agency are what make that agency. You know, you can buy as many guns and trucks or, you know, whatever, any kind of equipment. But without good people, you don't have anything. You make a very strong point. Um, the people are everything of an organization, even one that is titled as large as the U.S. Secret Service. Um, it's always about the people who make up these organizations and the dedication that they have individually and then at a team environment, uh, exactly what you're talking about there. Um, so for anybody listening that is still in the Secret Service that hasn't made this transition yet, um, what words of advice, what tidbits do you have or anything or words of encouragement do you have for these guys before they make it through to your seat? Because I'm sure they're looking at you right now going, someday I want to be like Kevin. No, no, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, most of the guys I know, honestly, go into um, corporate uh, security on the electronic crime side. Uh, that's w- there's a lot of money there. Um, it, to me, that I didn't want to do that. Uh, this is my retirement job. I wanted to do something fun, uh, and I always like doing this piece of it. The money's not really there, but that's not all life is about sometimes. I know a lot of guys that come over and take jobs in corporate EP, and um, it's uh, it's it's like, and I've told guys this before, it's like stepping off of a moving train uh, from the Secret Service. Um, things are much slower, less, you know, obviously less resources. You have to sell it, which is something Secret Service agents don't have to do. You don't have to sell what your product is. You either accept it or not, or actually you don't even have a choice. You accept it. The EP in the world is not like that. You have to, you have to transition very carefully. You have to, uh, most of the guys I know in the service know how to deal with boardrooms. They know how to deal with people pretty well. Uh, they're good at reading a room. Um, so that whole soft skill, hard skill kind of thing, really not as big of a deal as people make it out to be. If you just treat people like human beings, you're going to be fine here. The biggest, the biggest difference though, is, uh, the resources like, you know, some of the things that I used to just take advantage of, like intelligence, you know, I had an entire division in the Secret Service that would do that for me. I have to do it myself sometimes now. Transportation, you know, I have to, I have to pick and and release cars myself instead of calling up a guy over at the TS office and going, "Hey, I need, you know, eighteen cars." Blah blah blah. Um, it's it's that is difficult sometimes because you take you take that for granted when you're in it and when you're not in it, you miss it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, the corporate environment's wonderful. And, and also I would always tell people to take their time and select something that fits them as opposed to trying to fit in at some place that just doesn't work. Uh, some places simply aren't good fits for you as a former agent. Um, some places are. Uh, fortunately, I found a place that is, um, and the people here have been very, very kind to me. So I've been lucky that way. Well, I, I think that's a good segue to talk a little bit more about your own personal transition and and where you're at now, which is Procter Gamble. And uh, a lot of people probably don't know exactly what they do or who they are, but uh, they probably use a lot of their products, either wittingly or unwittingly. Um so not that we need to talk about the company at length, but uh, more interesting, your transition into the company and your role as the senior manager of executive protection. Um, you know, you talk about the resource change, and I'd, I'd love for you to build on that a little bit more um, in your own capacity. Um, Secret Service is known for being very resource rich in comparison to other places. I'm sure uh, there were times where you maybe didn't feel like it was as resource rich as you wanted it to be. But uh, when you look at other either agencies or um, especially the private sector, um, there is a very different uh, level of resource. Um, So maybe talk about um, how you not deal with it, but thrive around, you know, the, the resource difference that you have in the private sector. So um, I, I work in a I work with a, a fairly decent group here, um, and fortunately, this company is set up in a way that um, protection is directed by a board of director mandate, uh, which is key. Um, it's almost like a constitutional uh, mandate. Basically, the the protectee can 
they can kind of adjust their protection sometimes, but they can't decline it because the board of directors says you have to have it, which is a good thing. Uh, some companies aren't designed like that. They could fire their entire protection team yes, or they come in and they don't like the idea of protection in general. They don't think it's necessary. Uh, and then they get rid of it. Fortunately, we live in a world where it's pretty dangerous uh, and most details are protected to a point. So I walked into that. I didn't make that. It just, it was here. Uh, and I'm also lucky in the fact that the person that I, whose position I took was a former DS agent. Uh, so which was awesome because mm -hmm. uh, he had it set up around the DS model, which is very similar to the secret service model. Yeah. Um, so there were just, you know, little things that I could do to tweak it a little bit, but it was already kind of going before I got here. But <laughs> that said, uh, there's still a lot of things that we don't have. So uh, the company is very good with TSCM. So we have a lot of, uh, we have all the bells and whistles from REI. So if there's a brand new piece of equipment that REI makes, we probably bought it or it's on order. And the company is extremely good about training. So um, they actually uh, force us to, uh, I just got through uh, uh, VDI um, a couple months ago, I think. Um, we, we, we have to do that every three years. Uh, we have to, um, we're all EMTs. So that's a mandate also. I wasn't an EMT when I came here. So I had to, they made me go. And so I sat in a room with a bunch of 18 year olds for six months taking, <laughs> taking medical classes, which I hated. Uh, but fortunately I got through the test and, uh, you know, ASO, that's another program they, they, they make you attend yep. because we have a corporate fleet of jets. Uh, so we, we all do that. Um, so it, it, it's good. We, we cycle through training pretty frequently. Uh, we, we work it around our trips and we, we travel because we have 180 uh, facilities overseas in 180 different countries. Um, we, we travel frequently. Um, so uh, the cycle, but the cycle for training is always built in. So between trips, we're usually at some course or some class, uh, whether it's REI or some driving course or some, basically we get to pick. That's cool. We try and pick stuff that's industry leading, you know, some of the better training that's out there. And we do a lot of research on that. So we're not wasting the company's money doing it. But, uh, but yeah, the, the resources, you know, uh, work in the dot formation, uh, quite a bit. So <laughs> you have, you, you have to be very, uh, creative in your support network, uh, especially when you're traveling overseas. Especially for the overseas travel, what is kind of uh, some of the things you leverage um, in your capacity now uh, that is different from the luxury that you had of having an entire apparatus to to support you previously? Because um, international travel is is a challenge for a lot. Um, you're going into an environment, especially now in your capacity without that badge and that flex of the Secret Service. And even as a Secret Service, sometimes there's challenges uh, with other other nations and how they want protection done in, in their area of operations. Um, so in a private capacity, how do, you, uh, how do you manage the international travel for your team? So a lot of it is um, I, I try and use as many company resources as I can before uh, going outside of the company. So if I have ground security guys uh, that are overseas, I'll train them up uh, before the event. Or before the visit, oh, we send an advanced person, obviously, and uh, we'll, we'll send that person out. They'll they'll get everybody squared away, the driver squared away, um, folks like that. If we don't have those resources, we contract. 
So um, there's a lot of contracting involved with payments um, for different visits, depending on the environment or where we're going. Um, the logistics part of it, though, is pretty intensive uh, on the front end. You know, managing hotels, cars, people, uh, travel, personal travel, uh, you know, protectee travel, airports, all of that. Um, so it's it, it's kind of a it, it, that's really the uh, the soup the soup of the entire thing here that we're we're trying to get stuff done way in advance so we don't when we hit the ground over there we're not wasting time because we really don't have a lot of time yeah it's not like I have a ten day advance overseas I it's usually three four at the most um, domestically maybe two uh, so I have to kind of do everything in advance before we show up and then um, and then we do a lot of pitch and catch with a uh, uh, receiving, getting them off to the next location, uh, um, but building that network of security around the, the person is important, and um, we want him to be as safe as if he was in his own office, just like the, you know, just like in the Secret Service. Sounds like you take a lot of uh, your your twenty two years of service, the Secret Service, um, and you're still applying a lot of those things that you learned now in a different environment with different you know, caveats on resources and personnel and, um, but you know, you're, you're in this hat now. Um, what are some of the things that you particularly enjoy about your position that you're able to do in this, this capacity? I've worked in every sector of the government, state, local, federal. Um, but I've never really done anything to provide for my community, um, other than being a police officer. And, uh, this company is very, very important in my community. Mm. And this is kind of my way of filling that gap for providing services for a company that is uh, very important to the people in my community because they, they hire so many people here. Um, and they're appreciative of it. Uh, everybody in my company is appreciative of what I do from the top leadership all the way down. Uh, they appreciate what we do. They see what we do. Mm. Um, now, not everybody understands what we do, which is fine. Uh, but the but the end result is that uh, business was conducted efficiently, quickly, yep. on time, and we got whoever it was from point A to point B, and nothing happened. And uh, as long as the company is benefiting, everyone is happy. And, and fortunately, this company is doing very well. Uh, but it's like that in every company around America. There's guys, and I see them all the time on trips because we have intermingled trips with bosses, CEOs from around the United States, and it's like a little mini reunion, you know? Uh, hey, how you doing? How's the family? <laughs> you know, and we'll see each other, you know, California, New York, Washington, D.C. a lot. Mm. Um, and, and that's nice, too. You get to see old friends uh, out and about uh, doing the same thing. Uh, but again, the protection business is a short window in your life. Um, and I'm rapidly approaching the end of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that you should do this job as long as you're being productive to the industry. Uh, and as long as you can, you feel like you can, uh, you can do good for everyone. My dad told me one time, one of the, one of the greatest things my dad ever told me, the worst day of his life was when he realized that other men no longer found him dangerous. Wow. Um, and in this, in this job, it's an important thing to to be able to do it. Uh, being dangerous is part of it, yeah, but uh, you have to physically be able to do this job. Um, and 
you know, one of these days in the very near future, I'm going to be sitting on a beach uh, and, and thinking about doing this job. Uh, but, but again, uh, working in the corporate sector has been wonderful. Um, and, and I highly recommend it to my friends who aren't there yet. Uh, and I'm sure that some of them will take it up. That's wonderful. And, uh, you know, before you approach that, uh, period of time where you're sitting on the beach, reflecting back, uh, well, enjoying your time off, um, you know, you didn't stop at a transition for yourself. Um, you know, you, you've joined this board of executive protection professionals, um, which again is service orientated and you've put a lot of your time and effort blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, um, into a vision of pushing the industry forward and uh, standardization, professionalism. And and again, I think uh, talking with you about your time at the Secret Service and even you know starting out in the military, uh, it sounds like it's something that's always been in you and you've maybe followed pathways that have uh, uh, built on that. Um, but talk to me a little bit about you know, your own reasons uh, for joining the BEPP and uh, why it was something that was important to you to be a part of. So uh, when I got out of the agency, um, uh, I didn't know anything, honestly, about executive protection. I didn't know anything. I, I, I know a specific skill set and I tried to apply it to an environment, but it, it's different, obviously. Uh, in doing this job over the period of time that I did it, um, I realized that there are large disparities in information and training uh, across the sector. Um, that not everybody does everything the same way, and that's fine. Um, and not everybody has the same information as everyone else. Uh, and it seemed like it was being controlled, uh, and some like um, different organizations controlled it. You know, it costs a lot of money for a lot of certifications. So the people that were controlling it were making money off of it. I, I don't know, may, maybe it's just something in me. I, I, I didn't like that. I don't like, uh, and, and I am a member of a lot of those organizations. Um, but I think that what we do is so important that everybody should have the information that they need to do it. it there shouldn't be a price tag on it. Um, it. It should be something that everyone has. So I, I didn't really get a big picture of it until, unfortunately, I got on LinkedIn. <laughs> and and then, you know, I made the mistake one time, probably a couple years now ago, of uh, some somebody made a, a video and there was something in the, you know, it's a minor thing. Uh, but in the video, I made a com I, I made a comment in the comics and it was very, very benign comment. But uh, it was something about, hey, maybe you ought to think about doing it this way. Right. Well, the backlash from that, just that very small comment was so bad that I was like, wow, people are so they're very sensitive to uh, basically any critique at all. Nobody wants to be critiqued. Nobody wants to talk about it. And a lot of people make their money off of uh, smoke and mirrors in this industry. And so I started kind of looking at it harder and I realized that, that there really was. First of all, there's no standard. There wasn't. And the people that don't want a standard are just about as big as the people that do want a standard uh, because they are making money off. They're not being a standard, you know, they're making a lot of money. I'm not in that sector. Uh, I'm in a corporate environment. Um, and my, my precipice for doing this was to make sure that people on the corporate level 
have a baseline standard. Now, most of those people in corporate America, uh, they exceed it, obviously, mm-hmm. because uh, most of the people I know in corporate positions are former something. So those, those people at that level typically meet or exceed just about any standard that could be made. But there are a lot of people that are flying under the radar that are down in the weeds that are you know, promoting this or that, and they really can't do this or that. And, um, but they're making a lot of money doing it. Uh, and so we're trying to bring everybody to the middle, you know? Uh, so again, there are a lot of people that are going to see those standards, but there has to be a minimum standard, uh, somewhere that says, this is what I need to do to be at the, at a working level in this career field. So, uh, again, I did a lot of research on this and, uh, went back and forth with a couple different organizations. And then I found the BEPP. And uh, they're, what they're doing was aligned with the thought process that I had. Provide quality information, training for free. Um, get it out uh, to people so that a standard can be made. And, and again, these guys are all working for free that are working on it, all of them. I have... Uh... A lot of colleagues that are involved in it, you know, and and uh, yeah, they are, and they're doing a lot of good work, and uh, you know, quite honestly, um, I'm waiting for you know that end product, but some of the things you've already done, you know, and I'm looking at this free digital information library, and uh, you know, and that was something when it when I opened up, I was like, where was this, you know five, seven years ago, you know, and, and I'm I'm lucky enough, you know, my business partner came out of. Uh, the, the Texas DPS environment and was dignitary protection for the governor's detail there. And uh, that's what we've built, you know, most of our model off of. Of course, you have to make tweaks. You have to make things that are more relevant to your, your private sector environment. But uh, that's the standard that we run off of. And a lot of our, you know, agents, when we bring them in on details, are former, you know, DPS guys. They have that same standard that we vetted, or you know, we use a very small group of partners that we've either trained with Worklift. Well, that that uh that library is Travis Lishock. Uh, it, that's his baby, and um, could, nobody could have done it better than him. Uh, it turned out great. But anyway, the the BPP in general ha- has a goal, and that's to lift up the the entire career field. And um, you know, we we talked about this. I, and I came into it like I didn't come in in the beginning. I was a, by no means in the beginning. I came on as as somebody, a worker bee, trying to um, to write some of the standard. Uh, and there's so many other people that are writing. And, and some of the, these meetings are incredible that we have to go over the standard because it's like an argument. Um, it's, it's, you know, several people on a call and they're like, well, I don't know about that. How about this? How about, and it, it, you know, it's like a group consensus. Uh, it, and it always turns out to be a great product after we're done. So, um, but yeah, they're they're trying very hard to do that, and you know we talked in the very beginning about it. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stone throwing uh, from the industry, and it's already started, uh, which is fine. Uh, we we knew that was going to happen, um, and other organizations that aren't aligned with this are going to be upset, which is fine. But we're we're always reaching out uh, for partnerships. We're always reaching out for volunteers, uh, and I can't say enough about the people that are working on the project itself. There, nobody, and I mean nobody, is getting a penny out of this. Even the conference that they had last year, I think they cleared six thousand dollars 
after everything was said and done. And all of that money went right back into paying the bills for the VEPP. So um, a legitimate not-for-profit and nobody is making any money on it. And I think that that's the best part. Yeah. And I mean, it, it shows all the people that I know that are involved in these, you know, either the technical committee or, or some of these other working groups, um, they're all doing this for free. Like, I don't know anybody who's making a buck off of this. Um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting, the uh, the mission and scope of of the BEPP. Um, and I know a lot of people that are on these different working committees that belong to a ton of different organizations. Um, and, and so you're getting perspective from everywhere that all of a sudden it's being funneled in. And again, your mission here is really just the betterment of the industry. Um you know, it'll be interesting to see where this is at in another six months, a year, two years. Um, but uh, you know, already with the online library, some of the other resource guides you guys have put out, the conference that you've done, um, you've got another one coming up uh, this next year again. Um, and already have been talking about that. So, I mean, it, there's a lot of good coming out of this organization, and I think the brevity of individuals from across industry is what's really powerful about this. Yeah. Well, I, again, I hope people in, in other organizations and across the sector understand that, um, you know, everybody's, you know, I keep seeing stuff float around online and I try not to get involved with it, but some of it is just ridiculous. And, um, I, you know, the, the, the bottom line, I can, I can tell you because I'm doing it, there is no, no thought process at all within the BEPP that we are trying to push something down the throats of anybody. Um, this is all, uh, this is all a collective work to, to raise up an industry. And if people accept it, great. If they don't accept it, that's really up to them. But at the end of the day, it's for the betterment of the, of the, of the entire group. And there's no hidden agenda at all. It, it, it's to make the industry better. And, um, uh, I, I hope that that people uh, down the road. I'm already impressed with the people that are doing it. I mean, I'm on these calls with some of these people that are industry leading people, and I'm like, wow, that's somebody that. I mean, I don't know that person, but holy crap, that's a that's a pretty big big baller in the industry of EP. So, you know, I I, I think that the end product is going to benefit greatly everyone as a whole. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, we'll probably take a little bit of a of a break here and. and- talk about some of the stuff you've been producing, which, you know, one of those items that you guys have pushed out just before the end of the year here is that executive protection advance and logistics guidebook. And, you know, you talk a lot about the advance and logistics. You put out a lot of great posts and articles um, through various, you know, uh, different organizations uh, and medias, even your own on LinkedIn. Um, And you talk about these at length. Um, so I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, a discussion on not just this guidebook that you guys have created and maybe some of the other resource guides that you have in creation and have coming down the pipeline, but, uh, you know, just kind of getting into a little bit more of what you guys are doing. So we are going to, uh, bring on some of the other guys and, uh, continue this discussion with them and dive into, uh, a little bit more of what the BEPP has done and what they are going to continue to do moving forward. Good stuff. Ron, thanks for having me. So with that, we'll let you break here. And uh, again, thank you for spending your time with us 
one more time on the GSPG podcast and talking a little bit more about your own career, your own transition, and what you're doing now in the betterment of the uh, industry at large. Howdy, everybody. This is your host, Ron Jacobist. Say, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Kevin Dye, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming conversation with the BEPP team as they discuss their new guidebook. But first, I wanted to talk to you about a new podcast we'll be bringing in 2024. That podcast will be focused on non-security protection, folks. If you have a family, if you have loved ones, if you have non-security-centric friends who would benefit from conversations on personal security and emergency preparedness, then this is the podcast for them. As we flip the page over to 2024, our goal is to bring personal security and emergency preparedness to the everyday individual. That does not mean that the fun stops here at the GSPG podcast. Continue to listen for more in 2024 as we continue to bring on guests in the industry for more great conversations. With that said, you guys are going to get a sneak peek at the trailer for the upcoming Break Glass podcast. Welcome to the Break Glass Security Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things personal security and emergency preparedness. In a world where threats to our safety are becoming increasingly common, it's important to stay informed and prepared. That's why we're bringing you the latest tips and strategies to help you protect yourself, your loved ones, and your valuable assets. Listen in as we cover everything from home security, travel safety, identity theft prevention, and much more. We'll provide you with the tools and knowledge you need to stay one step ahead of the bad guys and Mother Nature. Each of our episodes is packed with actionable advice, real-world strategies, and interviews with experts in the field of personal security and emergency management. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting to think about your safety, the Break Glass Podcast is the perfect resource for you. So don't wait any longer. Subscribe now and remember... When it comes to your safety, always be prepared to break glass. Welcome back to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and... uh, Earlier, we were talking with Kevin Dye about his experience in the executive protection realm, um, a brevity of experience, and uh, we have now segued over to this guidebook that was created by the BEPP. We were alluding to it earlier, and uh, it is time to dive in. Um, I am joined by some of the other co-authors to this, James Cameron, Jerry Boniello, and Steve Hernandez. Well, gentlemen... Thank you guys for taking the time to step away and uh, chat with us on this podcast about the release of your guidebook titled The Executive Protection Advance and Logistics Guidebook. So again, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for having us. You got it. James, um, let's start with you. Um, What was the intent behind this guidebook? What really got you guys charged up to put something out there into the wild and provide it to executive protection officers and and uh, agents all over the United States and the world? Full transparency, I think Kevin really uh, made that push, uh, drafting off of his experience and, and 
and uh, some resources that uh, he's been able to utilize in the past, similar resources that I've been able to use as well, and, and Jerry and Steve and, and Joe. Uh, but I think what we've kind of seen is people, uh, when it comes to advances, fly by the seat of their pants without any kind of real checklist or guide of what they're supposed to be asking or uh, in any kind of methodical way of asking those questions. So that was really the driving of it is that the advance is kind of a, it's an art form and it's a lost art form. Definitely. And, and uh, let's kind of peel it back then before we dive too far into this uh, guidebook here and uh, talk a little bit about the advance and uh, the importance to it and also some logistics um, because you guys really cover both in this guidebook. So uh, for anybody in the group here that wants to jump in and uh, talk a little bit about the security advance as it relates to the importance of a successful operation. I can just real quick go, you know, the, the brilliance of this book um, before it was fully published, I, I had used it on a, on a couple walkthroughs. And I will tell you, you know, the brilliance of how it's laid out from start to finish. Um, and, on you know, Kevin's part, James, Jerry, Joe, I, I mean, it, it just works, right? It flows well. It, it works as far as the priorities of an advance would work. Um, you know, you can do this on your own, you know, for years. But when you go and you have something that's tangible in your hand to walk through, and, and I mean, it's just, it's brilliance. I mean, it's, and it's years of experience combined into a place that a beginner could go or an advanced person could go and probably learn something based on based on that book and the teachings within it. Wonderful. Kevin, do you have something there? Um, yeah, I mean, it, not everybody can remember everything, I'll be honest with you. There, there are things that we put in this book that I forget on the regular, <laughs> um, but it's always good to have it in your hand. Steve was uh, fortunate enough to get a, a pre-advanced copy uh, and he used it on a, a pretty big project out in California that he he was running for APEC. Um, but this is for the general practitioner, somebody who just works by himself, um, who doesn't really have all the resources and tools that they should have, uh, all the way up to a full-fledged team at a corporate level that uh, operates uh, with standards. So, you know, it's for me, it's just a good reference. And uh, I still... I mean, I have one copy that we got from the printer and I plan on taking it. I just took it to England with me um, and used it on that advance. And uh, it, it's just a good guide to just have something like, you know, again, you can't remember everything. Uh, nobody can. And there's nothing worse than walking out of a meeting and thinking, ah, oh, I forgot to ask that question. Uh, so th this is just something to help uh, practitioners do that. Absolutely. And uh, we talked on the front half just uh, in your experience going from Secret Service where you have you know, in comparison to the solo protector or even many corporate teams, uh, an abundance of resources and support staff. Whereas um, our last episode with Justin Keating, who uh, recently wrote a book on solo protection, um, you are much of that resource, if not all of it. And uh, you're either relying on third-party contracts or other outside support staff to kind of leverage some of, uh, of what you had within your umbrella at the government level. And, uh, you know, looking myself at this uh, guidebook, I still remember my first executive protection uh, course that I took when I started getting into this. And uh, this little nugget would have been awesome to have um, during our advanced portion. And uh, funny, quick little story. Uh, we ended up doing an advance at uh, one of the local restaurants that was on the list of potentials. And uh, as we finished, we were walking out, they asked, are you guys part of the Secret Service? And we thought, oh, man, you know, we must have done really interesting job, right? 
Uh, no, the next day we found out that the vice president was in town in parallel to our uh, our training course. So we were running around in a training environment around Las Vegas as the vice president was running in real. So it was kind of fun to have all the uh, police line up and escorts that were not for us, but it made our job a lot easier because uh, they were focused on something else that day. Uh, but this little nugget would have been awesome. And uh, I know if I showed up with it, and even if I show up with it in the future to trainings, it's going to be looked at uh, with envy because I'll be crushing through whatever is in front of me or for the staff. And they'll be wondering why and how I got that. But uh, you'll definitely kill it. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this going, this would have been so great to have because, of course, you know, group projects, sometimes you end up being the only one that works on it. And I think I put together our stuff into the wee hours and showed up and everybody was like, this is great. But this would have cut down significantly my time on putting things together. Well, yeah. And and I want to bring up like the billable, the billable and non-billable side of, you know, both industries, like certain people, they work at a corporation, that corporation has a cost. Um, associated with them performing that advance. And then, you know, as a provider, a private company, right, you're you're billing a customer for that. So there's what I like to call internal cost streams, and then there's and there's an external billing side. So this book, no matter no matter who you are, right, it's going to save people money and time because it's an organizational management tool that allows you to efficiently go in and check the box. I'm telling you from a bottom line perspective, this will save customers providers and corporations money. Again, people with a little bit less resources, you've got billable hours that you're worried about, efficiency. How does this leverage both your time and uh, your strength as an individual to pump out more work than you would be able to, to remember all in your head? Well, I think it's it, it kind of, if I was to go back to my military days and anybody that's listening to this podcast that's been through Ranger School or in Ranger Regiment or Ranger anything, really, um, you know, one of the things that we always had to maintain was that Ranger Handbook. That was also where you did your mission planning. You did your operations order and you followed it line by line out of the Ranger Handbook. And that's what you're graded on. And then that's what gets ingrained in you moving forward as you progress into leadership, but you've always got that reference point. And that's kind of what this book is, right? Um, you're not always going to need to do a hotel advance, but it's in here. And it's a great reference as opposed to going back to your um, hard book library that you may have at your house or previous notes. It's right here. And it's very, very similar concept as that Ranger handbook. Again, for those that are um, that have that military background and know what I'm talking about, but it's a it's a great reference. You know, I like that tactile. I like being able to flip through, and it also provides you the opportunity that if there is something missing, you can write something down on there. You know, um, you can write in the book. Um, you know, oh, forgot to ask this. Make sure to hit on this next time. Right? You can highlight things that are critical to you and to what your mission is, um, and that's going to be time savings because now you're not going back and forth between reference materials. You have it right in front of you. No, I think that's great, and. Uh... You know, pulling back to your guys' forward, you know, no guide, manual, or checklist is complete without your own experience and training. And uh, you reference this as being a reference guidebook, right? And uh, not a replacement for good experience, good training, but something to push beyond some of that and really elevate your ability to do this advance. Um, so let's talk a little bit about more, kind of dive in a, a little bit more about what this book is, what it isn't. I mean, you've got goodness, what, 80 some pages here of really good material. But like you said, you cover, you know, things that maybe you will be using once in a blue moon, things that would be used every single, you know, advance. Um, what is it and what isn't it? What was it intended strictly for? Um, and, uh, and we'll dive a little bit into some of these uh, topics that are in, involved here. Uh, 
Well, I, I think uh, to start, uh, this has been a, like a year and a half process, I'll be honest with you. Um, and I personally didn't have the experience that Jerry has for the, for the uh, private sector side. So uh, Jerry's involvement in this was very important because he, he kind of like, when we were first developing the idea, um, he kind of was like, hey, let's, let's add this. Let's take this out. This doesn't make sense. Um, or let's kind of market this towards the private sector more because this we didn't want this to be a government handbook. Uh, we wanted this we wanted this to be for the general practitioner, the, the general agent who is working day to day. So, Jerry, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, well, you did the heavy lift on this, but I came in and, and used some private sector experience and looked at it from a, you know, Kevin's got years of government experience. Uh, I looked at it from a private sector side, tweaked it as needed, uh, and it was a long process. We we created, well, there must have been at least four or five, maybe even six prototype books, you know, uh, where we printed them out to check on uh, formatting the quality of the information, had a couple of uh, close colleagues look at it and <laughs> give us their advice. And uh, it was a long process, but I think the uh, the end product is, you know, it's, it's going to be around for quite some time. It's, it's a great, it's a great resource. And, you know, uh, for my company, we create a smaller version. It's a much smaller version and the guys uh, out in the field find it to be extremely useful. This for any practitioner, you can literally not have any experience in executive protection and it's going to give you the steps necessary to conduct a very thorough advance. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, without giving too much away, because uh, again, I want people to to get this and get the value out of it. But James, what's something that's in this guidebook that would surprise the practitioner that's out there doing advances um, that they would look at this and go, man, this is some some good value here uh, once they get it in their hands? I think not just the, I mean, there's obviously a tremendous amount of, I mean, it's called the advanced logistical guidebook, right? So we have several different advanced topics from airports, hotels, venues, routes, hospitals, electronic devices. But there's actually a touch point on um, detailed assignments and responsibilities. There's a glossary. There is um, a clock position in vehicles, right? What is 12 o'clock? So it's, it really breaks it down pretty simply. And, and to include, there's a medical piece. Now, obviously, in a medical emergency situation, you're not going to be pulling out this book. But it is something that while you're traveling, um, on an aircraft or something, you can flip through this and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what March stands for, right? That's what the, this, this, these are the levels of triage. Um, one of the, one of the t comments I think we've gotten, well, I know we've gotten, um, I don't remember who, who made the comment, but even the, uh, table etiquette, you know, diagram of what is a salad fork and where is it at? Uh, I think those are kind of surprise um, informational nuggets that don't necessarily have to do with advance, but it has to do with protective details and, protective operations. Um, so I think there's a lot of little information that people will get out of this aside from just uh, the straight uh, advances. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny enough when you brought up the uh, dining etiquette. I, I mean, that's something um, that for many isn't thought about until you're sitting right there and you're going, I wish I knew which fork to grab. So I think little things like that will save, uh, save you and your clients some embarrassment. Um, and again, you don't want to be the show um, when you're working either, right? What's great about the book is is the size. Uh, you, you put it in your suit coat pocket. You know, you're traveling. Let's say you're taking a flight to do an advance. You sit there on the plane and you just thumb through it. And it's gonna. You're going. You, you like we all say. We can only remember 
so many things. And, and there are some small, small details that we may forget because we're rushed for time or we're surrounded by the client staff and, you know, just little things like that, that, you know, we can uh, notate and say, all right, this is something that I, I need to bring up. So uh, you can thumb through it on a plane, on a train. Uh, if you're taking an Uber somewhere in the back of the car, just flip right through it. It's, it's a great resource. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like it. Um, I was able to get one of the first 50 copies out there. I'm sure there's going to be many more batches that go out after this. Um, and, uh, I've enjoyed it. In fact, I've enjoyed it so much. I didn't just get one for myself. I got, you know, some for other people, um, and, uh, intend on using that as some, some holiday gifts. And, uh, I mean, it's an important, important thing to have. I think like we talked about the advance, even if you've been doing it for a while, um, if you're doing it all in your head and you get to the point where, oh, I got this, you're going to forget some things. And it's nice to just have an actual physical, you know, guidebook to reference back to, to beef up your advance. If you've been doing things for a while and there's stuff in here and you look through and go, wow, you know, I've been, uh, going through my motions, but looking through here, uh, there's some gaps that even I didn't recognize because few people are getting audited on, on their own advance, especially if they're that solo practitioner. Uh, they're the one on the team that people are looking to and, uh, you know, oftentimes they're it. So if you're doing things quickly, you can, you know, thumb through this and make sure you're not missing things, especially on the fly, which I think is uh, the most powerful thing to have with you while you're doing something. Um, last question before we wrap it up, where can people get this guidebook? How can they get their hands on this? It's on our uh, main website, which is at www.ap-board.org. There's a link right at the very top. Um, you can click on that link. It'll take you directly to the product page uh, where you can order. We have had orders uh, exceeding 10 copies. And for those people that need more than 10 copies, please contact me. I do have a discount code for you um, that will reduce the price of each book over 10 uh, by $5 uh, per book. Um, so any orders over 10, please contact me directly. Uh, international orders, anybody that's listening internationally, uh, we do have to have, we do have special shipping rates specific uh, to where those are going. So email or follow the directions on the site. Um, you can email at info at ep-board.org. Uh, provide me the amount of copies you want and the address they're going to. I will punch that in, uh, figure out what the shipping rate is, send you an email saying, hey, this is the cost. Are you good with it? Invoice you and then get those out. Uh, you know, As an example, we had 30 that went out yesterday to uh, international client. So, um, obviously their shipping was a little bit different, but you know, we can definitely get it anywhere in the world. We just need to know where it's going. Just reminder, if everyone wants to do around the horn, where can people interact with you guys, uh, individually? Uh, you've all been posting great nuggets on LinkedIn and uh, elsewhere. Uh, and where can they interact and uh, reach out to you guys? Yeah, Ron, I'll, I'll start that one. I, I don't like people, so, uh, I don't really like to interact with people generally. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, I, I do unfortunately have to hit LinkedIn every now and then. Um, and, uh, they're always welcome to reach out to me personally. If anybody in this industry ever has a question, call me and, and I'll give you my cell phone number. Um, and, uh, you can ask me anything you want. I'd be happy to talk to you. Awesome. Reach me, uh, via email at Gerard at omniumpg.com, or you can reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, pretty active on LinkedIn. Great. You can reach me at Steve Hernandez on LinkedIn, uh, North Group, and 
um, you can email me at steve at tngdefense.com. You can reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn. My email is james at ep-board.org. Uh, again, you hit me up on LinkedIn or on email. Uh, I take calls almost every day from people uh, that are looking for information, advice. Uh, how do we get involved with the BEPP? What's the industry? How can, you know, uh, just general questions. I'm always there to help anybody that's uh, eager to learn. So hit me up. Awesome. Well, and Ron, yep, go ahead. Ron, to make it easy, we're all in the board. So if you get, hit our board page, there's links to get to all of us. So, oh, beautiful, beautiful. With that, is it too early to talk about the next BEP conference, real quick? Let's do it. All right. Let's uh, talk real quick about the BEP conference. I was at the last one in June. It was great. Um, you guys have a time, place, uh, semi agenda already brewing. Yeah, so uh, 2024 is a little different. We've got a dedicated website now uh, for the conference, which is BEPP-ESOC.org. All the information is there. We've already got uh, all of our speakers lined up. We've got all the presentation topics lined up as well, uh, which is all posted on the website. Uh, The conference will be next year in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, June 19th through the 21st. We're doing two full days of conference. So it's about 14 to 16 hours of content that will be going out. Uh, Very similar to the conference this year. Every presentation will be printed and bound for all attendees, um, which we have a few of those copies left. If people want to order those from this year's conference, we still have some that we can can, uh, send out. We got some newer additions to this conference coming up. Nothing that I want to push out of the bag too soon. Let's just say there's going to be, you know, potential uh, raffles that people might be excited about. Um, and uh, some vendor opportunities that didn't exist this year that we'll be doing next year as well. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be a phenomenal. It's at the JW Marriott in Indianapolis. Fantastic venue. Yeah, we're we're really excited about it. Uh, anybody else got anything to add to it? Yeah, I, I mean the industry get back on this one is going to be impressive. Uh, people don't realize it yet because we haven't pushed it out. But uh, if you attend this conference, you're you're not going to regret it. Oh, that's great. And uh, for those who missed out on the inaugural conference, I could say, because I was there. Um, it was very well run, very professional, big bang for the buck. And there wasn't a big buck to this conference for individuals that were going there. So um, it doesn't hit your pocketbook um, very hard. And I think you get the value is just incredible. For anybody who's wanting to kind of take a peek back at last year's conference, Travis Lashuk and I actually did a, an episode, if you go reach back a uh, few episodes back, we actually did a review on this inaugural conference, and uh, I'm hoping that I can find my way to the conference this year. I promised my fiance I would take a year off. We wedding prep, um, but uh, I think I might be able to squeak it in there. So um, I hope to see you guys there. But if I don't, uh, that is my very legitimate excuse not to be there. So again, appreciate you guys. Is there anything in the wrap up that you want to? add before uh, we close us up today. Um, I just want to thank everybody that is on this call and Joe, who didn't get to make the call on all of their uh, contributions to this book and how important each individual was in making this come to fruition. Uh, It's a big deal. It's a big deal for the industry. And uh, each person on this call had had a very significant contribution uh, or they wouldn't be named in the book, actually, in the front cover. So I, I appreciate it personally. And and I think it's something that everybody can be proud of. That's great. Anybody else have any closing statements? This was a Kevin initiative for sure. hundred percent. So Kev, this wouldn't have have happened without you. So 
um, great initiative. Um, and yeah, and, and Ron, thank you for the opportunity that you've always provided to us um, to uh, put kind of information out there and let people know what we're doing and uh, you know, what, what the, what we plan on bringing for the future or what we're currently doing. So much appreciated for your time as well. Definitely appreciate you guys. Um, yeah. I mean, the BPP is uh, still a relatively new organization in the game. Uh, it's made up of individuals who are not new to the security protection industries. Um, and so for those that are interested in becoming a part of the BEPP as we wrap this up and uh, maybe have some value to give on some of these working groups, uh, just real quick before we go, James, can you uh, just talk about that real quick, what you guys do, what it is? I know we talked a little bit about it in the last uh, portion with uh, Kevin, but uh, we'll add it in here as well. Yeah, so the BEPP or the Board of Executive Protection Professionals was really developed um, to create the first ANSI or American National Standards Institute standard for providing executive protection. And we are just driving the bus and paying the bills, but it's actually volunteer, it's the volunteers that are making it happen. Right now, we're managing about 180 volunteers uh, split between technical committee and working group members that are providing content and feedback to what's going into the standard and ultimately we'll vote to adopt it as a standard so we can push it forward to ANSI. Uh, we are always looking for professionals that want to get involved. Um, initially, when we first started this, I know there was some shyness of, well, who are these people? Why am I going to sign up? This, that, and the other. Uh, we've really gained a lot of traction and we still take people on to this day. Matter of fact, we just added uh, three new people to the technical committee um, in the last uh, two weeks. Um, senior people uh, that really will have a lot of information to provide. And if, if there is somebody that wants to volunteer their time, and it is time consuming, it's a heavy lift, as you can imagine. Uh, technical committee, Kevin, what have we been meeting for the last 10 weeks, two hours at a time? Yeah, it's crazy. We are really putting in the work and the hours um, to make this happen. But it's, it's not the BEPP. It's the, again, it's the volunteers that are making it happen, um, which are phenomenal volunteers, not just an experience, but personalities. I mean, it's going very well. Um, anybody can email me again at james uh, at ep-board.org to volunteer. Go to our website, check us out, and you can also contact us through there. Jump on LinkedIn, message any one of us at any time. If you want to get involved, we'll make it happen. Wonderful. Kevin, did you have anything on there? No, not at all. I just, uh, you would be impressed with the, with the level of expert. I'm impressed with it. The people that are on these calls are just industry leaders. And I love the calls because uh, it, there's a lot of infighting. I'll be honest with you. Uh, we, we argue our points and we stand firm on what we believe in. And, um, and at the end of the day, it's a group effort to get this over the hill. And, uh, that the product that's coming out of this is going to be impressive. One point to that. The one critical point is that we are writing this to be achievable by the solo practitioner. Yeah. So it's not written for corporate teams. And the infighting that we have is really professional in the sense of you've got public and private sector, but we're all coming together and saying, all right, no, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with that too. And we're doing it with the focus of it has to be achievable by the solo practitioner. No, I think that's incredible. Yeah. Because again, um, for those looking outside in, and I'm not on a working group or a technical committee, um, but you're, you're you're curious about that. What's the uh, the the context, you know? And and to hear, you know, that a solo practitioner can meet meet these uh, these standards that you guys are working on. Um, I think that's probably going to put a lot of ease for people who are unfamiliar and, and unsure of what you guys are creating and if it's going to be way out of their scope or or their ability. Um, and it sounds like you guys really have you know, the base solo practitioner in mind that's out there doing this every day. So I think that's incredible. Um, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to see what you guys end up 
doing. And, and I cer- certainly understand, uh, the, uh, the infighting for lack of better, better terms, but the passionate discussions, I'm on a curriculum, curriculum development team with, uh, my primary hat. And, uh, it's just four of us. And I tell you, we spent two days in a room the last two days. And, and, uh, those are some passionate discussions and we're only delivering to, you know, 8,500 people, uh, and not a, not a global sphere. So, um, again, appreciate, uh, you guys coming on today and chatting with me about this guidebook, about the work that you guys are doing in, around and out of it. Um, and, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll have you guys back in the future, especially once you guys are ready to push out, uh, you know, and announce what you guys have been working so hard, which is, uh, the betterment and standardization of this industry. So thank you again for your time and uh, look forward to having you guys on in the future. Thanks for having us, Ron. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners at the GSPG podcast, until we see you again in 2024, stay safe. Welcome everybody for this post note of the GSPG podcast with the BEPP. We wanted to highlight Joe Atura, who was unable to join us on this podcast interview, but was integral in the Executive Protection Advance and Logistics Guidebook development. Uh, we want to give him a quick shout out here, and we appreciate his work and continuing engagement to better the executive protection industry. Thank you, Joe, and hopefully we'll see you on a podcast here in 2024.